0: The Bowery Boys, episode 206, the the real natives of New York. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys.
1: Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Boys.
0: Hi there, welcome to the Barry Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And in honor of the release of our new book, which is coming out this month, we thought that we would take the story of Manhattan, but go all the way back, before it was New York, before it was even New Amsterdam, to the original inhabitants of this land. That is the Lenape and the other tribes of the New York, New Jersey, and Long Island area.
1: Now, Greg, you and I are both relative newcomers to New York City. I mean, after all, we've only been here for 23 years. But how often have we heard people boasting about being native New Yorkers? People born here are rightfully proud of their upbringing and of their hometown, of course. Although the true native New Yorkers, those who were really here first... Their story
0: is all too often overlooked or taken for granted. I would say the story is often obscured, of course, because it's seen through the guise of European writers for the original settlers that were here. This is a story that we've told a few times before, the tale of New Amsterdam and the early days of New York, but we're going to take it and turn it on its head a little bit. And it's going to be from the perspective of the native people that lived in this area.
1: We'll be talking about who these first New Yorkers were, how they went about living in what is today New York, and how they
0: interacted with the pesky new European arrivals at their shore. And finally, we'll ask the question, what happened to the Lenape, and where are they? Because in fact, there are still Lenape with us in the United States today, but most of them are not in New York.
1: So join us as we explore the tribal tale of the Lenape, the true... Native New Yorkers. All right, Greg. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover in today's show. But just pulling back, before we even dive into the story, today's show is going to focus on the story of the native people who inhabited the lands that are today New York City, Long Island, New Jersey, this
0: region. And we typically call them the Lenape today, but it's actually not quite as clear-cut as that. I need to spend a couple minutes on the names the terminology that we use because you know these were not people with traditional boundaries that w- we might think about today with like you know particular barriers right. between states between counties
1: Right. Obviously, the territories were demarcated differently, right? They they had a different relationship to the yeah, land. Right.
0: Now, if you picked up an older history book, you probably wouldn't see the word Lenape all that much. You might see the name Delaware. The Delaware Indians is how they would have been traditionally described. This was a name that was prescribed onto them by the Europeans, and of course many tribes then did actually end up taking that name to describe themselves, of course named for the river, the Delaware River, which runs from the state of Delaware and comprises the western border of New Jersey, and it's up into New York State. But
1: this was a term that was applied by the colonists.
0: But that name is a little problematic because the Delaware River is named for Thomas West, the third baron Delaware. Oh, uh, the first governor of the British colony of Virginia and quite famous for slaughtering Native Americans. Uh-huh. So the proper grouping today, when we refer to people who lived in this region, is the Lenape or the Leni Lenape. Uh, and these were the tribes that lived in the area of New York, New Jersey, and the western area of Long Island. And this whole area was called Lenape Hoking, or the land of the Lenape.
1: You know, I have to say, Greg, you're doing a very good job with these pronunciations.
0: Well, I've got a couple more difficult ones later, so we'll, oh God, we'll you'll we'll just have to grade me on okay. a scale. Okay. But, I'm taking notes but, over here. But that's a tribal name, but people then would have self-identified themselves in other ways, either by language mm-hmm. or by their own family clan. So... For instance, in the area of the five boroughs, in the barriers of which we outline our show, the tribes would have spoken in a muncie. Dialect and so sometimes they refer to as the Munsee because it's a it's a language group and this is Munsee M-U-N-S-E-E Right. Okay. Now when Europeans first met the native Lenape They would hear words not really kind of understanding them, but would apply those words to the people or the land itself They would take these words from the individual clans and ascribe them to the area So a lot of those names still stick with us today. For instance, there were groups by the name of Canarsie, Ah. Rockaway. Those are place names today. But there are dozens even in the area, including Hoboken. The Tappan Zee Bridge is actually referred to the Tappan tribe. And of course, Manhattan itself is an old Native American name. We'll get to that later. So not only did they leave their language, they also left something else that's still with us today. Now imagine, Tom, over 500 years ago, with the fertile, beautiful land of this region, of the New York Harbor region, of, of all the breathtaking islands with springs, marshes, forests, and cliffs, landscape that was untouched by any human hand, except for these people, the Lenape. What they left onto the land was actually a set of footpaths and these Indian trails that were often first- built by animals, and then the Lenape would, of course, make them a little bit larger and would become well-traveled pathways throughout the territory. Now, some of these Indian trails are kind of still with us in a certain way because the Dutch would build upon these Indian trails, and then those would evolve into some of our modern streets, including Bloomingdale Road, which is Upper Broadway today, Red Hook Lane, which is a pathway in Brooklyn and perhaps most famous named for a particular tribe the Weques Quick excuse me is the Weques Quick that is a, a, a close approximation of the name of lower broadway it was the original indian trail that then became the lower part of broadway so it's sort of the wow. ar- the main artery of manhattan
1: okay well let's say that we're out and we're walking the old Weques Quick trail were we walking through some kind of indian village or
0: well, sure the the original settlements yeah. would sometimes be on the shore or high on bluffs very ephemeral because they would move around they wouldn't stay in places for very long due to local resources drying up or whatever they would never be more than 200 or 300 people again to underscore the transitory nature of Uh People would refer to themselves based upon the natural features. And so sometimes their names themselves would change over the years.
1: Well, this sounds really temporary. So uh, are there any traces of these? How do we even know that these existed
0: in the first place? There have been some archaeological traces of many villages, a lot up in Inwood. But perhaps the best known is something that was along the shores of today's West Village, a Native American village called Sapokanakan, now, I said 200 to 300 people per village. There weren't a huge number of Lenape, actually. I've seen estimates that were 10, 20,000 total for the entire region. I don't and, think anyone. And that's really...
1: not just on Manhattan Island. No, it's no, the no. Entire,
0: the entire territory. The entire territory, the entire Lenape Hawking. They wouldn't have very long lifespans. People, very few lived to their old age. And unfortunately, this would not get easier with the arrival of Europeans and their diseases. So what did these settlements look like? They had long houses, uh-huh. which they would live in, and um, they also had wigwams. You know, you know the wigwams, right? Oh, sure. So like in the winter, it's where they kept their wigswam. <laughs> oh. So I had to get one pun in before the seriousness happened. Um, uh, let's, let's come over that remark, <laughs> Anyway, these villages had, of course, areas of planting that were very sophisticated, and the Lenape worked towards leaving the land so it could regrow. It was self-sustainable in, in so, modern terminology. Right, so
1: they're sustainable farmers mm-hmm. growing so, all kinds of crops together, things that people are getting back into today.
0: Yeah, we have we do have some things in common. It evokes on me a certain kind of thought experiment. Like, imagine a scenario where somehow in history the native people and the original Europeans would have always gotten along permanently. I mean, think of these well-worn legends of the pilgrims and the Mayflower and the communal brotherhood that they had that uh, gave us Thanksgiving, right? Right. The
1: legends that
0: we were all taught in elementary school. But, you know, human nature would have had to have been much different for that to sustain itself for that long. Both sides were driven by a spiritual belief of predominance and attachment to the land, right? I mean, the Lenape had their own religions and beliefs that traced back hundreds of years to this land. Meanwhile, the Europeans, who were driven out into the world for exploration and conquest, they had the whole philosophy of gold, God, and glory, right. that God was granting them this land, right? So They, they were doing God's work. And, but there were Lenape customs that Europeans simply could not possibly understand, right? That they seemed like true aliens to them. For, for instance, women had, were quite prominent in Lenape society. They were the farmers and craftsmen, two things that were typically overseen by men in European countries. Hmm. The women were farming? The men weren't actually tending to the crops? The men were mostly hunting, the the men would clear the cross, but the women would care for them, would tend to them. Uh-huh. They had shamans, they had healers, sweat lodges, and other spiritual and medicinal techniques that would have looked quite superstitious to the Europeans. It all seemed paganistic not least of which you know the notion of social clans which is even another way that they organize themselves as the, as the Lenape came from three particular clans called the wolf the turkey and the turtle and these were all traced to the women's side of the family so these are wow. these are so
1: women really had a lot
0: of power here yes i mean this, so this was of course quite in the face of the first Europeans who did not organize their lives that way
1: not to mention the children of a couple would go off to live with their mother and be raised mm-hmm. by the mother's brother. so this led to other kinds of confusion.
0: They, they were not compatible on many different levels here and they were now competing for or, and or would soon be competing for resources. The long countdown to their banishment from these native lands really didn't begin here in Lenape Hawking, but actually further south in the very first European settlement of Jamestown, Virginia. It was first settled in 1607. The first significant battle between Europeans and Native Americans was actually in 1610. And who led that battle? The first Virginia governor, the Baron Delaware.
1: Right. And that's an important point to make as we frame the story today around New York that we're, we're telling like a sliver of Native American history mm-hmm. here. So there's a whole bigger story that's happening with many more tribes and affecting many more people outside of this territory. But now you took us up to the Baron de la Ware. Mm-hmm. We have to kind of fall back a little to the first Europeans to arrive in the New York area, and that happened in 1524, when the Italian explorer Giovanni de Verrazzano, Verrazzano with two, Z's, two Z's. arrived in 1524, he wasn't looking to find a new world to settle necessarily, but he was rather looking for a passageway to Asia, to, to China and Japan uh, to facilitate trade. He had been hired by the French king, Francis I, and he sailed his ship, La Dauphine, reaching the eastern seaboard in March of 1524 and arriving in the narrows here in the area between Staten Island and Brooklyn about one month later in April of 1524.
0: And how did his first meetup with uh, Native Americans go?
1: Well, not bad. Dozens of Native Americans rode out to meet the boat, you know, in their canoes. They were shouting at them and greeting them, generally speaking, you know, greeting them very warmly. And his men wanted to stick around, and and Verrazano wanted to explore further into New York Harbor. But unfortunately, a big storm came up out of nowhere, as they do, And he got a little bit nervous. Verrazano knew the waters out at sea. He understood what he was dealing with out there, but he didn't really know what he could expect if he headed further into New York Harbor. Right, it was uncharted. Right. And there was a native population that seemed hospitable, but who really knew what was going to happen inside? So he turned around, reversed course, and headed back out to sea.
0: But then Hudson comes along here and just a few decades later, right? Well, in
1: 1609. But before Hudson got here, there was already some trading happening in, in the region. Hmm. And that's because the fashion rage in Europe at this period. So late 1500s, 1600s, it was all about fur. You know, mm-hmm. those fancy fur hats that people were wearing oh, yeah. around. Well, that fur had to come from someplace. And most of the animals had already been caught in many parts of Europe. And at this point, in the late 1500s, Russia was the chief provider of these pelts, And and European merchants were looking for other supplies of these beaver skins and pelts.
0: Oh yeah, North America was just loaded with animals and very few human beings. So, of course, it must have been very desirable to send out a a few ships for a a few months-long journey.
1: Well, starting in the 1580s, the French were already doing business and trading with native people living in today's Canada. So, even some of the Lenape were already trading with the French by the end of the 16th century. Mm -hmm. But I think we need to remember that that the Lenape were not natural traders and business people. They weren't natural capitalists, Mm -hmm. to put it In an understated (laughs) manner, according to the book Gotham, even a half century later, Daniel Denton would note that many Long Island Lenape still showed a marked indifference to material possessions. They are extraordinarily charitable to one another, he wrote, one having nothing to spare, but he freely imparted to his friends, and whatsoever they get by gaming or in any other way, they share to one another, leaving to themselves commonly the least share. So no, they weren't natural-born capitalists. Once they started getting into the beaver trade, this also sort of upset the careful balance of life that you had talked about earlier. Oh, sure, The men had been out hunting and hunting beaver, but that was just one part of the equation before. Now, once they started trading with Europeans in beaver, understanding that they could get goods back for these, for these skins... They wanted to spend more time, naturally, out hunting down these beaver. So that threw off their sense of responsibility for their other tasks, which they had grown up for generations understanding as part of their culture.
0: It made their regular life all of a sudden dysfunctional, because this now became a primary focus for um, for their life.
1: And it introduced new, you know, aggressive attitudes. Maybe they would go to other Lenape territories that were not theirs to try Mm -hmm. to find beaver there as well. Now, pulling back a little, away from just the region of New York, in 1570, the Six Nations Confederacy was formed. This was uniting initially five and then later six tribes into the mighty Iroquois Confederacy. This federation of nations brought together many of the tribes into this really powerful force, which, among other things, wanted to control this new developing fur trade with the Europeans. The Lenape were not part of this confederacy. And in fact, Hmm. the Iroquois would, over the next 100 years or so, be pressing down and breathing down the necks of the Lenape, threatening their very territory here.
0: Yeah, they would be another foe for them to protect themselves against over the next generations.
1: Yeah, so just keep that in mind as we're telling the story moving forward that it isn't just a story of the Lenape versus the colonists, right? Um, First the Dutch and then the English. It's also them against us other tribes, Mm -hmm. especially
0: the mighty Iroquois. So we know at the start of the 17th century that Henry Hudson and his half-moon his half-moon sails into what would become New York Harbor and the river that would take his name, the Hudson River, in 1609. Right, and you know what he was looking for when he sailed in. A passage to the Indies, I'm assuming. Right. And and not the Independent Spirit Awards here. The Indies.
1: (laughs) I'm going to pelt you for that one. (laughs) Right. Yes, not the Independent Spirit Awards. (laughs) He was looking for another passageway, you know, to facilitate trade and instead winds up here in this beautiful verdant land. And, you know, again, the reaction, much like Verrazano's men before, they found the nature to be lush and the Lenape to be most welcoming. They seemed, you know, the Lenape even seemed glad to see them. They were eager to trade with them. And they brought out tobacco to trade for knives
0: and beads it's one big happy family. Sounds like everything's going well.
1: Uh, well, there was a bit of a hiccup, however, when a Native American did shoot one of Hudson's men in the neck with an arrow and killed him. And Hudson felt at that moment that it was best
0: to push on. And that was all in the lower bay.
1: That's right. So on September 12th, he headed up through the Narrows and made his way to today's Hudson River and spent the next week sailing up the Hudson to the site of today's Albany. Now, when he got back to Amsterdam, he arrived back with good news and bad news. Uh, The bad news was that, obviously, he hadn't found the passageway to the Pacific, right, and to the Indies. The good news, however, was that there was excellent trade to be done with these native peoples, uh, especially in fur. So, enterprising types in Holland uh, hopped on this opportunity, and new ships headed back to the area under the direction of captains like Cornelius May, and Adrian Block and Block actually lived on Manhattan Island for the winter of 1615 when his ship had burned and the Lenape
0: actually helped him rebuild his oh. ship I mean, it was vital for them to get to this area as soon as possible, of course, because other European countries were coming over, including England oh, and yeah. Sweden and Spain, and they were taking these areas of land to begin trading as well.
1: Right. So the the race was on. Block was the first to use the term New Netherland for this giant chunk of property and to use the term Manhattan. So
0: the trade race is on here.
1: Yeah. And in 1624, Holland's West India Company was eager to get over here and to spread its influence and claim the area. And they did this, as we've discussed in other shows, by bringing over settlers, French Protestants called Walloons, who were looking for a safe place to to live. So 30 families came over and they were scattered throughout the territory. I think we talked about this Mm -hmm. most recently in the Governor's Island show last year. I mean,
0: it's almost like there were placeholders, right? I mean, they were... they were
1: Like, we're going to throw three families up here and two over there and five up in Albany. Like, just say... They're claiming the territory. We're calling dibs. By 1624, Peter Minuit had been sent over to be the director of New Netherland.
0: But what about the the core settlement here? So that's... If the whole region is New Netherland... Right. Aren't they calling this New Amsterdam yet?
1: Well, so remember all those Walloons who were scattered all over the place? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, there were other encroaching settlers who wanted to claim those territories. And there was this Iroquois Confederacy that was pressing down and threatening the Lenape territory. These Walloons, off in the hinterland, mm-hmm. right, trying to hold down the company's land, they suddenly found themselves at the crosshairs of international expansion mm-hmm. and intra tribal conflict this is not where they wanted to be so so many many of them came down to the southern tip of Manhattan where they could be better protected where the company had set up a stronghold because there the company could also really monitor the ships coming and going up the Hudson River there they you know felt much more secure and this was the foundation of the settlement of New Amsterdam and in May or June of 1626, We get into the legendary, quote-unquote, sale of Manhattan. Legendary because there is no receipt or there's no document that survives to say exactly what was paid or to whom it was paid.
0: And A lot of the information we have is very second-hand, like references in letters, that type of thing.
1: Right. But the legend states that Peter Minuet, the director of New Amsterdam and New Netherland paid the lenape in goods worth 60 guilders
0: for the island. And furthermore, it is believed that that sale, and we keep saying this with sort of like air quotes because it's not exactly clear that either party really understood uh, the other the other one uh, at all and that the that they even understood the terms of what that agreement was. But it is believed that that took place actually in the area of today's Inwood Hill Park uh, today, there is a, a stone that marks the spot where a tulip tree mm-hmm. once stood, and that tulip tree marked the spot of the sale of Manhattan, which occurred here.
1: A report in November 1626 stated that the company had, quote, "...purchased the island Manhattus from the Indians for the value of 60 guilders. It is 11,000 Morgans—that's about 22,000 acres—in size." But right, like you mentioned, the very terms of the sale probably were understood by the parties in different ways. You know, the the Dutch obviously thinking that they were purchasing the land for their exclusive use, whereby the Lenape had a, a different way of relating to land in the first place. Like they had a territory that they were allowed to farm and mm-hmm. they, they were allowed to fish and trap and shoot and that sort of thing. So many believe that the Lenape probably thought that this was an agreement allowing the Dutch settlers to use their land, to be on their land, not to take it outright and expel them from it.
0: I mean, you could crudely describe it as non-exclusive lease of the land. After all, you know,
1: you couldn't own the air. You couldn't own sun or water. So how could you own land.
0: Right, one of these other essential elements.
1: And we do know more about a transaction that took place a couple months later on August 10th when Peter Minuit bought Staten Island. And here there is a record of the sale that states that the transaction consisted of, quote, some diffies, which is a kind of cloth, kittles, kettles, axes, hose, wampum, drilling owls, juice harps, and diverse other wares. So these are the types of materials and supplies that they were trading
0: with the natives. On April 19th, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. So 1626, and the Dutch believe, at least, that they own these large parcels of land, but the Lenape and other people are still living on these lands.
1: So that's where we are at the moment of the sale of Manhattan. How would these new landowners treat the Lenape, and and where in the world would these native New Yorkers go from here? We'll tackle the rest of the story
0: after this. In 1631... Mr. Peter Minuit was replaced as director general with the wonderfully named Wouter van Twiller, Hmm. who who governed from 1633 to 1638. He was a big drunk. He was mostly (laughs) ineffective in stopping the expansion of their chief European rival here, which was the English, and pretty much let New Amsterdam go to total waste. And so, in 1638, came the arrival of William Kieft. Kieft governed over New Amsterdam for over a decade. Was he better than Van Twiller? Marginally so, but he was not well liked either for reasons you will soon discover. On a plus side, he did create the very first Council here at New Amsterdam. He built the first city hall, you know, the uh, which was around Stone Street, that area. Yes, the Stathos, also a tavern. He also got into the habit of purchasing land from native tribes expanding the boundaries of New Netherland well into the area of western Long Island. So Kieft is expanding the territory. It was one of the reasons he was hired for the job, was to expand New Netherlands throughout the regions. And of course, not surprisingly then, he would see the native people of the land as barriers to the Dutch growth inland
1: but if he's buying up these parcels, it sounds like they were they were willing to sell to him.
0: Well, initially, it seemed like they were working things out. It was a harsher relationship, but uh-huh. um, they were all making it work until 1639, when Keith kind of went overboard and actually demanded that all of these different tribal groups around the area pay for protection in wampum. And in, in exchange, the company soldiers would protect them, right? But uh-huh. of
1: course... And I'm sorry, you said wampum. And wampum is these bands of beads that are tightly sewn together that, that functioned as a
0: kind of currency yes, for the tribes. And in fact, New Amsterdam used wampum because, of course, they did so many transactions with the native people around them, right? Mm-hmm. Now, nobody really asked for keeps protection. So he's basically an almost like a mafia strong arming way at its finest, right? To just get all this wampum from the people for a protection that they didn't necessarily want or need or would even have felt protected by. Everyone seems to be living in a lot more danger these days and eventually it would violently boil over. The first altercation came to be known as the pig war. In July of 1640, hogs that were owned by a man named David DeVries, who was a mediator between William Keeft and his men and some of these Native American tribes, well, his hogs were killed out on his farm in Staten Island. And because of this connection that he had with Keeft, the director general retaliated in a very brutal way. To quote from the original words of David DeVries, A hundred armed men departed New Amsterdam, headed to the Raritans, a nation of savages who lived where a small stream runs up about five leagues behind Staten Island for the purchase of obtaining satisfaction from the Indians for the hostilities committed by them in killing my swine. The troop killed several of the savages and brought the brother of the chief as a prisoner the secretary had tortured the chief's brother in his private parts with a piece of split wood and that such acts of tyranny were perpetrated by the servants of the company as were far from making friends with the inhabitants, Now, the Raritans, who were the Indian tribe of Staten Island at that time, to no surprise, then retaliated against Keefe and his men and ended up killing four of them. This began a sort of an escalating series of violent attacks and murders throughout the whole region for several years. And what years are these again? I'm sorry. That was 1640. The following year, August of 1641, there was a gentle old Dutch wheelwright that lived up in the area of today's Turtle Bay. He was attacked by a member of the Weisqueesquick and brutally beheaded. This caused Keefe to galvanize the troops again and waited for an opportunity to strike back at this particular tribe as vengeance. The following winter in 1642, a band of traveling Mohicans attacked settlements in the area of Westchester, uh, attacked certain Indian settlements, the Tappan and the Weisquec Indians. And this latter tribe was, of course, the tribe that the murderer was from, right? The man that murdered the little wheelwright in Turtle Bay, the one I just mentioned. So they escaped. Their original settlements were destroyed. They escaped to two particular places, one called Pavonia, which is the, today's Hackensack, and Corlears Hook, mm. uh, which is a area of the Lower East Side today. So this attack happens during the winter? Right. So freezing cold harsh elements. These people were struggling. They went to these two places for comfort and care, right? They were escaping something. They were not in any way in some kind of attack mode. Keefe's men saw this as a grand opportunity to get terrible revenge. And so in February of 1643, perhaps one of the most brutal attacks, at least in the New Amsterdam period, Keep's men attacked and killed in both of these locations. The details are so grisly, Tom, that I don't think I could even read some of them. They're quite graphic. Many of them might be slightly exaggerated, but it's clear from the tone that they showed no mercy, killed savagely and with no remorse. One disturbing detail I will share is reportedly severed heads of Indians, dozens of severed heads, were brought back and put on display in New Amsterdam as sort of setting a very gruesome example for future native people who were to pass by. So this isn't just like frontier justice here. This is complete outright savagery, which is meant to make a terrifying point.
1: But it doesn't seem very smart, right, or strategically in no. the best interest of new amsterdam to be attacking the the indians who are living just at their borders
0: right i mean this is not was not a thoughtful maneuver in any way of course now retaliations were going to happen against the other settlers right these were there were settlers living unprotected all across the land right. so over the next few years uh, other Native Americans banded together from different tribes, like they had new allegiances because of this horrible mm. attack. And they retaliated by slaughtering these undefended settlements across the land. For instance, those that did lose their life included in 1643 Jonas Bronk and his family on his homestead in the area that would, of course, later take the name the Bronx. Further east that year, an English settler named Anne Hutchinson, we've all learned about her in history class. And um, she
1: came down from Massachusetts, mm -hmm. right?
0: In search of her own religious liberty. Right, and had gotten permission to settle here in New Amsterdam. Well, she and her family were brutally killed. Um, in the area of today's Pelham Bay Park, there's even a spot called Split Rock. It's another rock monument to this period, marking where legend has it, where she and her family were killed. You know, I mean, what's really tragic is these individual groups, they all had good relations with uh, the native people, with their neighbors, but Kieft here had upset this gentle balance. Hundreds died over the next few years, and this would be called Kieft's War, well, the Dutch West India Company had had the last straw, and Keith was replaced in 1647. In fact, on his return back to the Netherlands, he perished in a shipwreck off the coast of Wales, and of course, was never really reprimanded for this. One guess, Tom, who replaced William Keat? Could it be our old friend Petra Stuyvesant? Old peg-leg Pete? Peter Stuyvesant comes in to really save the day. He shapes up New Amsterdam. I mean, we're not even talking about what a mess it still was, but Stuyvesant really helped develop it into a proper town here. Was he able to restore some sense of peace with the native population? Indeed, it seemed with Keith out of the way that there was, at least with certain tribes, a sort of clearing of the air, but things were not all that rosy, for in 1655, another major altercation between the Dutch and natives really just illustrates that even when you say peace in this time, it's still a very fragile peace in any any particular way. So on September 15th of that year, while Stuyvesant and the company's soldiers were off dealing with another crisis involving their neighbor New Sweden. Which was sort of in today's southern New Jersey. Yeah, Philadelphia, that area, Right. All of a sudden, in unprotected New Amsterdam, almost 800 Native American men in 64 canoes arrived at the borders of New Amsterdam. You can imagine how frightening that was. Massive. Yeah. They were reportedly on their way to do battle with other Indian tribes up north. But at some point in time, while they were here, kind of wandering around and being sort of scary and threatening, a woman who was with them was killed while she was picking a peach off of a tree that was owned by a farmer, and he greatly overreacted and killed her. Well, as a retaliation of this, over the next three days, dozens of colonists around the region here were killed, and over a hundred colonists were taken captive. But this, this Indian force, these were all Lenape. They actually were not. They were. We don't know all the different tribes that comprise this particular group, but mm-hmm. there was a, it was a mixture of tribes. And so you can imagine that there were other groups of people that were living around here who got really freaked out by that because they saw or had heard legends about what had happened before with Kieft. And they did not want any retaliation because they would be the ones retaliated against. So an interesting result of all of this, which was became to be known as the Peach War or the Peach Tree War because mm-hmm. of this initial incident. Because of this, most of the Lenape tribe around the region would actually acquiesce to New Amsterdam and to Peter Stuyvesant and eventually deeded most of their land over to New Amsterdam as a way of, I guess, like passing the peace, peace pipe or, or the peach pipe or, or the, the peach will. pipe here. So by 1664, Stuyvesant and New Amsterdam and the Dutch actually negotiated an extraordinarily far-reaching peace treaty with With the Lenape Lenape in in this area. But by this point, by 1664, devastated by war with the Dutch and the English and all these other tribes, and decimated by all these diseases and all the dwindling resources, Mm. the Lenape and the other people here were mostly powerless and almost on the brink of extinction.
1: I was reading that between 1630 and moving forward to 1779, so in that 150 years or so, we have records of more than 600 deeds that show the the transfer of lands from the Lenape over to the European settlers. And it shows a, a you know a very Organized transfer of property signed over by the leaders by the Indian leaders and it illustrates how you know, they were pushed away from these settlements up the river and and really into the interior. So especially along the waterfronts, uh, which were the the choicest properties, mm-hmm. those were the first to go, you know, in today's Brooklyn and Long Island and, of course,
0: all along Manhattan and the Jersey Shore. You said the waterfront was the, the most choice property. Well, some things, I guess, just never change.
1: Although I think that they were probably less interested in, like, the beautiful setting sun. Well, I mean... Yeah. Probably they love the nature, but they were also very interested in the access to the waterfront for fishing and for boating purposes. And the
0: later industry.
1: But it makes you wonder if in this transfer of property, you know, were were they being taken advantage of?
0: I'm just going to posit that question, Greg. Were they were they being hosed? I think in the larger picture here. Yes, but you know, these smaller transactions had to be made because they needed resources mm-hmm. at the time, they needed to feed their families,
1: and the value of the land was also going up. So they were catching on to the fact that the land was worth a lot more than the 60 guilders of your, mm-hmm.
0: you know, they were they were getting a lot more for the property. So maybe these individual deals, and of course they weren't just getting money, they were getting protection which they actually now needed.
1: Right. Protection, although, as you had mentioned before, they were getting a little bit double crossed and were being taxed for that same protection occasionally. So by most accounts, however, they were losing their ancestral land and being pushed into the interior Mm -hmm. where they had less access to the resources that their culture depended on.
0: So, I left that at 1664. Right. That is, of oh, yeah. Course, that's a big year. <laughs> that's, that's the year that the New Amsterdam became New York, and the Dutch control was passed over to the English.
1: Right. And the English were led by Colonel Richard Nichols, who overtook the colony from Stuyvesant, and Nichols traveled around New York. He he negotiated and signed treaties with the Indians, many of whom were you know at war with each other. So even with the treaties that you mentioned uh, in 1664 and 1665, called the Nichols treaties, fighting between the uh, the various Indian nations would flare up again uh, between the Lower River uh, and the Iroquois, including a really large, deadly battle near Schenectady in 1669. Hundreds of people were killed in that, and the result pushed many of the Hudson River Indians, so the the Lenape down nearer New York, pushed them more to the interior of the
0: country, seeking safety. Uh, And to get farther away from the Iroquois. So they were even by this time run out entirely of these original lands in which they were first, where they first met the Europeans. There's
1: a double front, right? A double assault here happening in a way. You have the colonists who are buying up their land and forcing them to relocate. But then you also have the uh, fighting from other tribes that is pushing them farther west inside the country looking for safety. But pulling back out of the region a little, it's important to remember, again, that this is happening all the way up and down the coastline, that there are many nations of native people whose existence and ancestral lands are under attack and being displaced by the growing colonial population. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, we have to push through more than 250 years of history here. Let's just say, in terms of the Lenape, there are a number of really important treaties that were signed or that they were kind of forced to acquiesce to um, that determine their fate, you know, and it's a fate that's quite sad and rather unsurprising in that it was the same thing over and over. Every treaty that was signed in the next hundred years saw this population pushed farther west, away, Mm -hmm. you know. So really, the story of what happened to the Lenape is as depressing as it is unsurprising. As the new nation takes hold and grows westward, of course, these native populations, not just the Lenape, but the others as well, that are at its western frontier, continued to get pushed farther and farther and farther west into sort of the no-man's land of the Wild West, until, really, there was nowhere else to go. There was the Treaty of Easton in 1758 between the Lenape and 12 other Native American nations that forced them to give up land in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and move west of the Appalachian Mountains. Now, because of this, many of the Lenape moved west to the Ohio country, And in that same year, in 1758, New Jersey set up one of the nation's first Indian reservations on 3,000 acres of land in Burlington County, which is Mm. just east of Philadelphia. In the reservation, however, they encouraged the Lenape to act in a more Western manner and to live in houses and, you know, adopt a different lifestyle. That didn't work very well, and the Mm -hmm. reservation closed in 1802.
0: During the Revolutionary War, which is now at 1776 through 1783, didn't the Continental Army actually make alliances with yeah. certain Native American tribes? Well, they tried
1: to. Remember that many of the Lenape lived in Ohio mm-hmm. at this point, and that there was a British stronghold in Detroit. So, you know, this is territory that the Continental Army wanted to get through. So they signed the Treaty of Fort Pitts in 1778 mm-hmm. at Fort Pitt, today's Pittsburgh making this alliance with the Lenape in Ohio and allowing for their safe passage through their territory and offering protection and that sort of thing. They even said that after the war, when it was all said and done, this new nation would respect their territory and maybe they could even set up their own state after the conflict and be represented in Congress.
0: Yet another promise that was snatched away, though,
1: And some of the Lenape did side with the British during the conflict when things started falling apart. And after the war, some who sided with the British resettled in reservations in southern Ontario, where some of them still live today. Now, very quickly, there are just a couple more treaties that we need to mention. There's the Treaty of St. Mary in 1818, which forced the Lenape to give up land in Indiana and move to two million acres in Missouri. Now, stay with me. 11 years later, in 1829, they were forced to move west again off the land in Missouri to Kansas. But in 1854, you guessed it, they had to move again after Congress passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which opened those states, Kansas and Nebraska, to settlement for farms and to allow for the Transcontinental Railroad to be built So what to do with them? They moved them to another territory, which they called the Indian Territory, which, when it was combined with some other territory around it, in 1907 became the state of Oklahoma. And the
0: Indian Territories were sort of dissolved. So over 150 years, these Lenape moved from the New York region, where Mm -hmm. they originated, to the Ohio Territory. Right. Right. Then to Indiana, that's right. Missouri, Kansas, and then finally, Oklahoma, which then for a time was quote-unquote Indian territory. Right.
1: And so today, there are still Lenape who live in southwest Oklahoma. About 10,000 live in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. And there are still some living in New Jersey and in Wisconsin.
0: And these are the last trace of the original Lenape, the people who had lived here when the Europeans first discovered the area of New York Harbor?
1: Well, it depends how you define trace, because there are still more than 85,000 Native Americans living in New York City. So obviously, there's a big legacy uh, that's still alive and well, and who are living in modern New York City.
0: Now, for more information on Native American history, the very best place in New York City that you can go, is the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian, which is located in the old Alexander Hamilton US Custom House, which is a beautiful building in itself, designed by Cass Gilbert. But that museum has been there for quite a while. And they have revolving exhibits about Mm -hmm. different tribes and they have a a core exhibit or a, a permanent one that sort of like gives a great overview of the life and the legacy of Native Americans in this country.
1: And not just this country, because the museum actually tells the story of the native populations of the entire Western Hemisphere. So it's trying to do a lot, and it does, you know, that through these exhibits and showing cultural artifacts. I, I just do have to say, Greg, that I find it rather surprising and a bit disturbing that there isn't more dedicated in the public space to the history specifically of the Lenape people and of those native populations of the New York area. It's very it's not something that's really easy to find. Of all the subjects that we talk about on this on the show, it's actually strangely difficult to go to a place and to see a sort of modern commemoration To this story. And it's a big story.
0: I would argue, though, that in a way, the presence of the original Lenape and the Native people are still all around us. Of course, as I had mentioned at the beginning of the show, in the pathways and in the many, many names that places and towns and areas all around the New York region and Long Island and New Jersey take on those particular names, including, of course, the name of the borough of Manhattan itself. On our blog, BarryBoysHistory.com, I'll have a lot of interesting, n- not that many photographs, obviously, but a lot of illustrations from this original period that were documenting these legends of the sale of Manhattan and of these mini wars, of course. And I'll also have links to other websites to get a little bit more in depth information about the people, the Lenape people themselves.
1: That blog is BoweryBoysHistory.com. You can join us on Facebook slash Bowery Boys and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. And a special thanks, of course, to our patrons who have joined us with small monthly contributions to help support the Bowery Boys and help us in producing twice as many episodes. You can join with your support at Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And as a thank you, we have lots of little extra excerpts from the show and special patron-only audio
0: clips for you. And finally, as we mentioned at the start of the show, our book, The Adventures in Old New York, is finally out. Many of you will be getting it in the next couple weeks if you pre-ordered it, and it will soon be hitting the shelves. So we'll have many events surrounding the promotion of this book in the New York City area over the next few months. So check the blog out and all of our social media for more information. And finally, to get some of that information, you could sign up for our newsletter. Just go to the blog and fill out our little form on the side of the screen there, and you can get all that information right into your inbox. So thanks very much for listening to our tale of the Lenape and the early days of New Amsterdam and New York. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon.